Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 37. And I've entitled today's sermon as a question, and that question is, how should Christians live in an evil world? And that is the response of this psalm. It's a great psalm, it's a long psalm, it's an acrostic, um, and there's real substance. We're going to read the first seven verses, because that's really all we have time to, to look at this morning. So, Psalm 37 and the opening uh, in fact, let's read the opening 11 verses, actually. We'll read the opening 11. We're going to refer to, to the opening 7. But let's read the first 11. It's entitled, He will not forsake his saints. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your hearts. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as light, and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his ways, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the earth. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Let's pray. Awesome, holy, sovereign God, we come before you with your word in front of us, knowing that this word is sharper than any two-edged sword knowing that there is nothing in our lives as your people better for molding us and shaping us than your word presented before us. Lord, help us this morning to be still before you, to wait patiently upon you as we come to your word. Amen. The Israelites have being called by God to inherit the land. He takes them out of Egypt. He brought them to Canaan and they're in possession of that land. But they didn't drive out the Canaanites. Strong influence from them. And as a result, Israel sins and they sin hard. They sin harder even than the Canaanites did. So a righteous man in the midst of the mess of the land is tempted to abandon that land that God had called him to. David himself did it temporarily when he fled from Saul to the king of the Philistines. It wasn't pretty. It didn't work out very well. And in the midst of the temptation to leave the land, in the midst of the anger of the righteous people, David has something to say to us. 
as we look, as we look to this world, as we look upon evil, as we see evil, as we hear evil, as we look at the ungodliness that exists in this world, it is easy to be angry and bitter. This is a sin-sick world. We see its evidence everywhere. So, how should we live? I think this psalm is a stunning instruction for us that is as relevant to us today as it was to those it was written to. The, the rate of moral decline in our society is terrifying. Everywhere we look, we see signs of utter moral decay, of a society that rebels against God. We see particular attack on God's design of man and woman, of God's institution of marriage between man and woman, the sanctity of life in the womb. We see attacks on all these things. We see attacks on the things of God. There is much for us to lament over in a culture that blasphemes God, that has no respect or regard for him. So, how should we live? Psalm 37, the first three words, fret not yourself. Three times we're told that in this passage. Do not fret. Do not fear. Do not be anxious. This word this means to burn. Don't, don't burn slowly. Don't let it get under your skin because it will only lead you to wrong. Worry about yourself. Keep yourself right. Righteous anger is good. It is good to be angry at the things that grieve the Lord. But anger is not what we're going for here. Anger is not the purpose. There's not a lot of joy in anger, though at times it is right. But our starting point here is simply these words of fret not yourself. Just the, the, the starting point here is don't, don't, don't worry, don't be anxious, wait. And, 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 and we go on here to explain how we do that. There's four, there's a number of instructions in here. We're going to put them into four, simply. And the first of those instructions we find in verse 3 is simply this. Trust in the Lord. We see it again further down there um, in verse 5. Trust in the Lord. That, 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 that's David's exhortation to the Israelites. Trust them. And at the same time, strive for, for goodness, strive for truth. But the first we do in a society that is utterly broken, that is so far away from how God intended it to be. Trust in the Lord. Spurgeon in his sermon of this passage opens with three words, faith cures fretting. Faith cures this, this, this sense of disarray, this anger, this sadness, this anxiety of what we see in the world about us and I guess our first question is very simply what is trust and in biblical terms trust is simply for us to take God at his word to accept his promises as true and we've got a stunning example of that in Hebrews chapter 11 where the trust of Abel of Enoch of Noah of Abraham are commended and he focuses on the story of of Abraham whoever the writer of the Hebrews is 
We know the story, don't we? God promised descendants to Abraham, but years and years go by with no son. He and Sarah are old. They're past the age of childbearing age. And Abraham goes fearful. He grows doubtful. And he says to God, look, you have given me no offspring. And God says to him, you're going to be a father. You're going to have a son. And that child would come, from that child would come a vast nation of people, as many as the stars in the night sky. And on the basis of the word of that promise alone, though Abraham had not seen the mighty hand of God, he trusted God. We're told, Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed in the Lord. Abraham is commended as this example of, of what it is to trust in a faith in, in Hebrews 11. This example that he took God at his word and he believed him. And that faith that is modeled for us in Abraham is the key to our relationship with God. Hebrews 11, 6 makes it abundantly clear. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Because, of course, there is no other way to the Father except through the Son. It goes on to say that in order for us to, to come to God, we must first believe, believe that he, is, that he exists, believe that he is good. And apart from that trust, out with that trust in God, we are lost and we are dead in our sins. And of course, we know that that trust, that faith is not something built entirely of our own backs. It is something that is unbelievably a gift of grace of our Lord God. God gives the people of his choosing the ability to trust for salvation, for sanctification, even for our next breath. God has everything within his sovereign control and in his hands. And I think we understand that concept, don't we? There is believers, trusting in the Lord is important. But do we understand the role that that plays in our day-to-day -day lives? Do we understand what it means to trust in the Lord in every decision, in every moment, in every action, in every word, and in every thought? I wonder if we were to reflect on this week, what examples would we think of of times when we have known we have trusted in the Lord? And does your faith rest on the promises of his word? Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. That follows this instruction to trust. Live out your trust. May your trust be evidenced in front of you. Spurgeon again said, there is a joy in holy activity which drives away the rust of discontent. Great words. Trust is not some abstract thing. It's not some abstract action, but it is something that we, we put into motion, that we see, should see evidenced in our lives, trust in the world, don't fret about what this world has to offer, what the world is doing, but know God, trust his promises, and draw near. And that'll lead us secondly, in verse four, delight yourself in the Lord. What does it mean? I think to delight ourselves in the Lord means firstly, seeing God as the most glorious of all, the most admirable of all, the most beautiful 
of all. I'm sure we've all got people we admire. My great granny, right? Even when she was like 99, she loved Elvis. Like there was Elvis, fridge magnets, there was, there was things everywhere. I'm sure you know people that admire people and well, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with us holding well people that we enjoy, we look up to. We admire this creation, don't we? We admire the beauty of the things that we have, the privilege of seeing and living amongst. But I think that we are wired as people. We are meant to be satisfied by admiring what is the most admirable, what is the most glorious, and what is the most beautiful. And of course, that is God himself. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, The Excellencies of Christ, writes of something as he points towards the light in Christ, as he, as he looks to explain that to those who listen. Some few hundred years ago, he wrote this, the person of Christ brings together infinite highness and infinite condescension, infinite justice and infinite grace, infinite glory and lowest humility, infinite majesty and transcendent meekness, deepest reverence towards God and equality with God, infinite worthiness of good and greatest patience under suffering evil, Expedient, exceeding spirit of obedience with supreme dominion over heaven and earth. As he would appeal to those who would listen, how great is God this? This is how great God is. And Paul says for us in 2 Corinthians 4 that Satan will keep us from this. Satan will keep us from seeing God and the beauties and the excellencies and the wonderful nature of God. Satan will keep us from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Why? Because Satan is in the business of killing our enjoyment of God. He wants to keep us from seeing the unrivaled beauty of Jesus. That's what he wants to keep us from. He doesn't want us to get the gospel. He doesn't want us to know Jesus and not just know him, but love him, delight in him. He doesn't want that. But it is in the cross of the Lord Jesus that we see the, the, the excellencies of God, all that is admirable, all that is beautiful, come together most clearly. That's why it's the linchpin of our faith. The cross is the center point of, of everything. So practically, for us to delight in the Lord is for us to hold and savor God, especially as they are seen in the Lord Jesus, to hold them dear and to hold them tight. And I think the second part of delighting is for us to acknowledge that, that this great God is intimate, that he is a caring savior, that he is a friend, that we might delight in who he is and his attributes, but also we might delight in his love and his care, his protection, and his desire to know us individually. You are not a number in a system. You're not a cog in a wheel. 
God has us in mind as individuals. We are named, we are known, we are loved, we are wanted. And that is simply breathtaking. That is simply incredible that this God of infinite excellency and and everything that there is to be admired about might make it possible for you and I to know him. Know him, delight in him. Don't Don't let Satan steal that joy from you. How do we live in this world? We trust in the Lord. We delight in the Lord. Thirdly, we commit our ways to the Lord. We all walk in a certain way. We all live our lives in a certain way. Every one of us today will walk a certain way. We'll make decisions. We'll say things. We'll think things. We'll might write things. We'll do things. We'll, and all of it will be influenced. We will walk a certain way. We will take a certain path. And the scriptures would ask us that that path, that way, might be committed to the Lord. To commit ourselves to the Lord because we trust, because we delight, is for us to say, Lord, I want you to be honored and glorified. I want you to be honored and glorified in the path that I take, in the way that I walk, in the things that I do, every desire that I could possibly have. Lord, I commit my way to you. I trust in you. That is what it is for us to commit our ways to him. And because he is trustworthy, because he is the one that we should delight in above all things, it means his ways are the best ways. It means it is good and it is perfect. And our response to that, friend, should be, God, make your ways my ways. I love the second bit of of this verse. Commit your ways to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. You know, you're sitting there for a minute thinking, right, okay, now this is turned to, to what I have to do. This is now about me. But of course, it's not. It's not all about us at all. There is our responses, but God will and must act. We need him to act. We need him to act so that we might commit our ways to him. We need his leading by his spirit, his wisdom, his guiding, his comforting in in the directions and the path that we might take. We need the, the God-given, spirit-enabling power at work in us. That's why we pray. That's why we pray, Lord, help me. Lord, what do I do? I think prayer is a clear expression of our need for God's help. It is an acknowledgement as we come to God in prayer that we are not God, that we do not have a handle on all things. We do not have power over all things, but Lord, we need to commit this to you. It's easy for us, isn't it? 
Often in a world where we have everything at our fingertips, everything that we might need to put the Lord first tangibly in all that we do. It is easy to make prayer a token gesture. It is easy to put prayer last. But it's not the way things are intended to be. Might we, as we trust in the Lord, delight in the Lord, commit our ways to the Lord, friends, might we prioritize prayer corporately, individually? Might we make it utterly central? And lastly, we come to rest in the Lord. Verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. I think this is probably the hardest thing that's asked of us in this psalm. I don't know about you, but for me it is. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Pascal said in the 17th century, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. It's a bit of an overstatement, but maybe it's the sort of overstatement that we need. All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. How quick are we? How quick are we to pick up our phones and our TV remotes or whatever it might be? How quick are we? How hard is it to be still, really still, and to wait upon the Lord? Because it means simply that, stop, rest, be silent, wait upon the Lord. And we need it, we need that space because you could put this verse 7 at the beginning and at the end and sandwich everything in between it. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him and in that space that you might trust in Him, delight yourself in Him and commit your ways to Him. Because if we aren't still before Him, if we aren't waiting patiently for Him, how else might we trust in Him? How else might we delight in Him? How else might we commit our ways to Him? You ever lie in bed and your mind is just racing with things? You toss, you turn, you're running over and over and over again, things, scenarios, situations, and before you realize it, it's the middle of the night. David says in Psalm 4, meditate on God's word within your heart, on your bed, and be still. And I think for us, this, verse 7, is this, this needing this space to reorientate our lives. Because if we don't do this, how, how, how easy it is for us to slip. How easy it is for us to take our eyes off of the excellencies of God. And I think Jesus models for us the kinds of habits and the rhythms of life that we as his people need because even God is son and flesh. Still, he prioritized time alone with the Father. I think Jesus is simply the best example for us of being still and waiting patiently. We see Jesus retreat time and time again from his ministry, not because he was bored and not because there was nothing going on. You know, you might think, what good Jesus could have done what good Jesus could have done if he hadn't retreated and spent more time with people. But he chose again and again in his perfect wisdom and love to first and foremost seek the Father's face. And if Jesus, 
Even the Lord Jesus carved out time in the demands of his human life. How much more should we? Do you know, we only get little glimpses of Jesus and his habits and what he did in the Gospels. But what we, what we have is, is no accident. What we have of Jesus is very deliberate and it's not scant for us. There, are, there is detail there. And we learn a little of Jesus' personal spiritual rhythms of the way he did life, of the way he did ministry and then retreated and spent time with the Father. And I think in him we find timeless and, 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 and rhythms that transcend culture. Ways in which we might be still and wait that I think can be applied to our lives, anybody's life in any culture and any time. For 2,000 years, the teaching of Jesus has been there are times to engage, there are times to do, there are times to retreat. And I think a healthy Christian life is neither just of the two. We can't be all action, we can't be all go, go, go and out there. But at the same time, we're not called to solitary confinement. We're not called to sit on our own, tucked away from things. But like Jesus did at the beginning of his ministry, withdrew to the desolate place, to the desert. And then soon would return. I think it's interesting for a moment to consider the role that the scriptures played in Jesus retreating and spending time with the Father. Obviously, Jesus didn't have his own personal copy of the scriptures, New and Old Testament, in front of him. But of course, he had what was read aloud in the synagogues he would have had what his mother sang, what he would have rehearsed and committed to memory. And throughout his ministry, we see a man who is utterly captivated by what is written in front of him. And like Jesus, we would do well to take God at his own words. At the very outset, in the wilderness, how many times do we read the words and Jesus quote what is written? He does it. The beginning there of Luke 4 as he goes into the desert and then he returns from the wilderness to his hometown. And then he stood and he read and he took the scroll of Isaiah and he announced that today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus identifies John the Baptist in Matthew 11 as the one who is written. He clears the temples of the money changers on the grounds of what is written. He rebukes the proud by quoting scripture. And over and over and over again, especially in John's gospel, throughout it we read those words, as it is written. This very word that is to be central to our lives was central to the life of our Lord Jesus. Jesus withdrew, withdrew. Even after Mark, Mark 1, even after his fame had spread throughout the land and this whole city was gathered together at the door, Jesus did something remarkable. He slipped away the following morning to spend time with the Father. Remarkable. Remarkable that our Lord Jesus would pull himself away and spend time. So, where does that 
place. Where does this leave us? If our Lord Jesus would be still before his Father and if he would wait patiently on him, converse with him frequently, it is of the utmost importance that we might too. I think it is one of the hardest things for us to do. To sit quietly in a room alone, as Pascal would say, is not an achievement, but it's an instrument. The chief end here isn't just to be still or to wait patiently. That's not the, the, the goal of our faith, but these are instruments, these are tools by which we might see the chief end of man to enjoy him and glorify him. Friends, this world will do as this world does. The depravity that exists is nothing that should shock or surprise us because it certainly doesn't surprise our God. But we are called to live differently. We are called to trust in the Lord, to delight ourselves in the Lord, to commit our ways to the Lord, and to be still before him and wait patiently for him. This is no easy task, friends. It is no easy task, but it is of the utmost importance if we want to stand as his people in this age. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us a way through your Son, the Lord Jesus, that we might trust, that we might dwell in the land, though not a physical land for us here now. We might dwell in your presence, that we might delight in the excellencies of who you are, made manifest to us in your Son. Help us, Lord, please, to commit our ways to you, that we might honor you in word and thought and deed. And help us, please, be still. Wait patiently to prioritize your word as written to us, your word that continues to teach, to rebuke, to encourage as it has done for your church for centuries. Thank you. Amen.